it's anyway, all good. Um, cool, man. Well, Andy, I really appreciate you being on here. Um, you know, definitely, definitely have been looking forward to, to catching up and also just like, honestly, just sitting down and hearing more about your like entrepreneurial journey and kind of what you're doing now. Um, but yeah, I guess like, um, yeah, I guess first off, like are, where are you, where are you based right now? I'm in Austin, Texas now. Okay. I've been, been bouncing all over. I've mostly lived in San Francisco and New York for, for most of, uh, of, of my professional career, yeah. but now in, now in Austin. And, and yeah. you were in, I think you were in Miami for a little bit. I was very oh, yeah, briefly yeah. in Miami. I did a quick Miami stint during yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I decided that was not for me and moved to nice, Austin. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I've heard, I know a lot of people went to Miami and, as a flirty and I'm, I mean, I'm happy that our state's getting attention, but, um, but yeah, I heard it's good, but yeah, I heard Austin's like great. So that's, that's sweet. Really happy to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I guess it's kind of, um, just to start off, uh, Andy would love to have you kind of just give an overview of your, your journey, you know, like where you started and kind of what you're, what you're doing today. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. By way of background, I grew up in uh, outside of Boston in Massachusetts. Um, went out to the West Coast, went to Stanford for undergrad, um, was studying math, computer science there. I got super lucky. I had uh, an amazing professor uh, my freshman year, um, Balaji Srinivasan, who ended up, um, he was a GP at Andreessen Horowitz and co-founded Earn.com and was the CTO of, of Coinbase and uh, now is kind of an investor and, and thought leader. But he was a professor and, and taught this amazing class called Startup Engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's an interesting story we can get into, yeah. but uh, a group of us ended up coming out of that class uh, seven of us and starting the Stanford Bitcoin group with Balaji in 2012 or 2013, him and, and uh, Vijay Pandey, who was another professor and is also now a, a partner at Andreessen Horowitz on their bio fund. Um, and we started Stanford Bitcoin group. So it, really interesting time studying Bitcoin, thinking about its applications, building some stuff, doing a bunch of research, advocacy work. Um, and then I ended up leaving school in 2014, uh, started a company in the uh, political media space called Sidewire. Um, ran that for a few years, wound that down, and then started a company called CoinList, which spun out from AngelList uh, in 2017. Um, we operated CoinList uh, for a few years. That business is still doing great um, and uh, and is, is doing really well. I'm really proud of the team there. Um, but I'm currently now running a project called Eco. Um, and I actually helped Eco get started uh, when it got started back in 2017. So I've been involved from the early days, but came over full-time as CEO in uh, October, 2020. So about a year and a half ago at this point um, and joined full-time as CEO and have been been building uh, building Eco ever since. Nice, yeah. Very, very uh, yeah, good summary. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like you've done, you've done so much. Um, and definitely, you know, touch on all the different points. I guess just to start off, um, yeah, I think we, we, we didn't, um, you left before I started at Stanford. So I don't think we ever met there, but, um, but yeah, I guess like that class you took um, about Bitcoin. I mean, honestly, it's, what year was that that you got into? It's twenty twelve. That's crazy. Twenty twelve. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, we're really yeah, lucky. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I'd love to hear more about that class. What you guys talked about about like talked about in regards regarding uh, Bitcoin um, and like what you're like. Yeah, just like what was that experience like? I mean, just talking about about it that early. Yeah. It was amazing. We got, we got really lucky. So was, the class was um, called Startup Engineering. And uh, the, the backstory is that um, Peter Thiel taught a, a kind of famous class at Stanford, CS183, yeah. um, about starting a startup. And that, the, that class, the lectures from that class were what ended up becoming the foundation for his book, Zero to One. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so a lot of people have read this book, Zero to One. It's a yeah, great book. Yeah. Um, a student named Blake Masters, who was in Peter Thiel's class and is actually now running for Senate in Arizona, but um, who was in that class, took notes in the class, and then he and Peter ended up co-writing this book, uh, Zero to One, which is now very popular. So Bology set out to uh, teach a class that was basically kind of the spiritual successor to CS183, yeah. CS184, and it's called Startup Engineering. And it was, it was about starting startups, but really practically. Mm. So Peter Thiel's class was very much kind of the theory yeah. of startups. Like how do how does disruptive technology work and how does that come together? Bology's class was um, lots of guest speakers who ran or were early at successful companies yeah. talking about what that experience was like. Um, and also really in the weeds. So everything from how do you map out the TAM of an opportunity to learning Git and command line interfaces yeah. and coding things and how do you like do the dirty work that's required to start a startup. So it was a really amazing class. But the, one of the coolest parts was that as part of the class, everyone had to work on a project, like the, you know something that could turn yeah. into a startup. Um, and there were these weekly hackathons. So every Thursday night, for this entire semester, um, at 6 p.m., we'd at anyone who wanted to would meet up in um, this big room in, in an engineering building at Stanford, and would work on their projects together. And a chunk of us were there from 6 p.m. to 6 yeah. a.m. every Thursday, just hanging out, talking, building yeah. things, working on ideas. Um, and that group of people, there were kind of seven of us that were there every Thursday all night. Bology would stay. Mm -hmm. He was there and he would stay all wow. night, which is, was an amazing yeah, opportunity yeah, yeah. for us and just was supportive and hanging out and, and being there. And after the class ended, we're all sitting around. We're like, we enjoyed yeah. that time so much. How can we keep it going? And we'll, you know, Bology kind of proposed he had been so into Bitcoin. He was like, well, why don't we start the Stanford Bitcoin? Group? And this group can be the, the founding members of that, that group. And we can continue to work together and spend time together. Um, and so that was really how that how that came to be. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I, I took um, I took 183C, which I think was like a derivative of that class, and it was like Reed Hoffman taught it uh, the, the year I did it, and we had all the guest speakers. Um, but I for, yeah, first off, I love the fact. I mean, I don't know. I've been you know, we've been doing stars for a long time, and um, I think I do I do think that you get better each time. Absolutely. So I think like more classes should be very like project based. Like just start something. And it's sad, not sad, but I, I wish like Stanford and other schools did it better where we have like bases and I did that. And, you know, it was great. I met a lot of people, but I think just like forcing it in a way of like starting something, um, that's really when you're going to learn. I think like PowerPoint and, you know, reading articles, books is like not as good. Um, so that's, that's sweet. That, that, that was, um, that was forced in that class. Um, so, so the class itself was more just generally about entrepreneurship. And then how did, how are you guys okay with like your professor being like, Hey, let's just focus on Bitcoin. Well, we had, we had talked a bunch about Bitcoin yeah. in the class and Balji brought it up as something really interesting yeah. that's happening and been kind of talking about how compelling yeah. this, this future could be. Um, and so we'd gotten exposure to it, but you know, there was just a belief at that point, that this was going to be a really interesting yeah. thing and, and was worth studying. Yeah. I think at some level, and it would have been, I don't know that it would have made as much sense to say, Hey, we're going to start a really small starting a company yeah. group or something. There was work to be done on Bitcoin at yeah. that point, researching it, doing all of this, this interesting work. Um, and so, yeah, there's kind of a natural opportunity to start 
uh, start a group there and start start doing that that academic study yeah. and the advocacy and, and building projects. Nice. And 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 how did Bology, How did he get into Bitcoin? That's a great question. I actually don't know what his origin story is, but he a characteristic of him for those that are unfamiliar is that he is wildly early on trend after trend after trend after trend and seems to have this ability to see into yeah. the future. Um, and so he he had been extremely excited and interested in it for, for a yeah, long time. Yeah, I mean, that's that's nuts. 2012, that's insane. And I, I guess when you guys were working on Bitcoin in that club, um, I actually have a couple of friends who were, who were joined that club later, like Axel Erickson, Nadav Hollander. I'm pretty sure it was the same club. Um, I didn't know like the origin of it, but um, that's cool. What did what were you guys like working on, or what were you guys like researching specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So interestingly, it's actually not quite the same same club that exists okay. today because uh, of the seven people that were in the group, I believe six dropped out. Okay, wow. So the, the club actually died. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> everyone dropped out of school to go and start start companies, and then it got reincarnated later on as the I think the Stanford Blockchain Club or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, which is which is awesome. Glad someone's carrying on the, the legacy. Um, yeah, there were a bunch of things being worked on. So there was a lot of we're doing a lot of economically oriented research mm -hmm. around how Bitcoin could be adopted in different ways and what use case it might serve and what impacts that would have, and um, analyzing kind of trading on exchanges yeah. and and what was happening there, and then building projects. So, for example, um, two, two of the guys, Matt Riles and, and Pat Briggs. Uh, started a project called try btc which was a really easy on-ramp to trying to interact with bitcoin for the first time and getting a wallet yeah. and making a donation to a charity that accepted bitcoin it was this really seamless really well architected yeah. flow they ended up selling that to coinbase um and uh and worked to coinbase for a little bit um john backus and alan meyer were two of the other uh students in the group um they started a company that was then called BlockScore, now cognito which actually just sold to Plaid recently um, as well, in a significant acquisition. Um, and they were doing KYC for initially just kind of crypto companies, although now it's expanded to yeah, more, yeah, yeah. more businesses as well. Um, and so, and then the other thing we were doing that was really fun was kind of running up and down Sand Hill Road, pitching VCs on Bitcoin. We weren't looking for investment yeah. ourselves. It wasn't, we weren't looking for them to give us money, but we were just saying to people, this Bitcoin thing is going to be a yeah. big deal. You should be paying attention to it. You should be investing in it. You should be looking at companies building on top of it. Um, and so, yeah, it was really, really interesting in 2012 or 2013 to be doing the rounds, pitching Bitcoin as technology and as, as the future um, and seeing how different people responded to it. Um, and we still get, uh, this is a decade ago, um, we still get messages from people that we pitched in 2012 or 2013 or 2014 about Bitcoin saying, hey, we're finally getting into it. We remember when you guys were here 10 years ago telling us that we should pay attention, uh, which is uh, which is yeah. a fun blast. From that's that. that's wild. I mean, and and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm victim of this. We all are like people change their minds on things and like, oh, I you know, like we were against the technology or a trend. And then like, later on, that's fine. You know, people change. We should be open to that. Yeah. But are there any like any people in like, particular or like firms that were like, had like a really insane response that like now have like completely shifted or? No, I think I, people had, there were tons of yeah. people that were not interested that were like, ah, I don't, I'm not there. This doesn't, I'm not sure I buy it. It doesn't make sense. But I think to, to the credit of pretty much everyone, everyone acknowledged that mm -hmm. 
it's possible this thing yeah. could work. And, you know, it's, it's technologists yeah, yeah. that we're pitching to here who believe, who make a living by betting on the yeah. future. So no one had an insane reaction of, you know, <laughs> this is disgusting or it's not going to work or whatever. There were just people that were mostly quite, quite skeptical about it, which I think, you know, rightfully yeah. so at the time, there was very little evidence. And I'm sure we were saying all sorts of harebrained things about what yeah, was going to happen yeah, in the future. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's the pitch could have been better too. Yeah. I'm sure. That's sweet. And, and did you guys in that group invest also in Bitcoin personally? We, we did, you know, as of course, everyone from that time will tell you not, not nearly yeah. enough. Um, but we, you know, we did, we got involved in it. Yeah. I think it's important to have exposure to the technology sure. if you're going to be advocating for it and building on top nice, of it nice. and all that. That's awesome. And, and I yeah. guess like who else was in that, that group of seven? So the group of seven was uh, myself, Pat Briggs, Matt Riles, who started TriBTC, sold to Coinbase, Alan Meyer and John Backus, who started BlockScore, then now named Cognito, Ryan Breslow, who started Bolt, um, and Chris Barber, uh, who's an entrepreneur also living he's in LA and San Diego now. Um, and I think that was the seven. Did I get that right? I think that was seven. Yeah, I think yeah. that was I think that was the initial initial nice, group. Nice. Um, that's super cool. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I mean, I think, um, the fact that you guys were, in, I mean, you know, opportunity, who knows what could have happened, but the fact you guys were interested in startups and got, were in this class and exposed to, but then kept working on it and were excited. Like that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I guess one last question on that era, 2012, I mean, still, I'm still you know, in shock over how early that is. Uh, most people I know in crypto got into it like 2016, 2017. I thought that was you know, the people went deep into it, thought that was like relatively early. Um, what what was the environment like, the ecosystem of Bitcoin? Were you seeing, because I, I have a theory on like most new technologies are used for not nefarious things, but like money laundering, you know, encrypted messaging and things like that. And, you know, selling drugs, like what, what was the, who were the original Bitcoin, like who was the original Bitcoin community at that time? Yeah, well, first of all, to your, the first half of what you were saying, I do, I think we're still early. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I think we'll be looking back in 10 years and we'll be like, man, I know people that got in in 2022 yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was early. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that, that cycle always continues. It never ends. And I look back, I got into it in 2012 and I'm like, it's not really that early. There were people that were in this thing when it got started in 2009, yeah, yeah, 2010, yeah. 2011. That was really yeah. early. Um, when these things are on these sort of exponential growth curves, like every incremental year matters a lot. So, um yeah, I, I think everyone's everyone's still early. No, I, I would totally counter that. I think the narrative around Bitcoin being used for illicit nefarious things back then. In the early days, Bitcoin, the people that cared about Bitcoin were hardcore technologists. Yeah. Like I, I think of it not so much as these kind of early use cases around encrypted whatever this that. It's I think about it as like homebrew computer club. You know, early days of, of personal computing, where there wasn't any utility for this stuff. Like you. We could dream about what it could be used for, but there it wasn't anything. And so the only thing that you could really use it for was for the joy of yeah. using it in and of itself because you were interested in the technology and where it might go. So it was a lot of very hardcore technologists and people that, and of course there were also people that had kind of political beliefs around decentralization or the power of that. But um, yeah, it was, it was a really small community and it was those people that cared about the technology in a, in a pretty deep way. Um, and there's still a lot of those people around that we met back then who are still just as dedicated to the space now, which is, which is cool yeah, to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think the, the comparison with the homebrew uh, society is, is very spot on. Um, 
That's sweet. And so I, so I guess, Annie, so what, so after that, you said you dropped out um, and began working on your first startup. What was, and you know, people talk about dropping out and, you know, they glamorize it a lot and everything. And um, also, also they kind of make it sound like it's easy. It's actually not, I mean, Stanford makes it relatively easy to like take a leave of absence, but like you still have to decide like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go all in on something. I'm going to leave college. Like it's not as trivial as people make it, make it out to be. What was that decision like? And what, what did you, what were you working on that, you know, to drop out for? Yeah. I, you know, I actually didn't, um, and this is different for every person. Yeah, obviously yeah. it's a very personal thing for me. The decision to drop out felt like the decision to kind of change jobs mm. at some level, which you know, if you think about changing jobs, you've worked for a couple of years, four years or whatever at some company, and you're thinking about going and taking a new job at a different yeah. company. Not as a founder, just, you know, as someone that is working at a company, it's a big decision. It's a life decision. You're going to talk to your family about it. You're going to talk to your friends about it. You're going to talk to mentors about it. You're going to try and get advice and make the right decision about, about what to do. Um, but it's also not typically kind of like an existential you know, what is going on here? And I, I think sometimes people characterize dropping out as the latter. And for me, it was very much the former. I felt like I was being in school was kind of like a job mm. in some way. Now, unfortunately, it's a job that you pay for instead of getting yeah, yeah. paid <laughs> to do it. But you know, it's, it's basically a job and, uh, and I was changing jobs. And, uh, and so I think, you know, I was thoughtful about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't kind of like a, a crushing mm. decision for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd gotten really fortunate. I, I was, um, I loved building stuff and creating things and engineering and all of that. Um, and I met, uh, someone, my, my then co-founder, um, Tucker Bounds, who is a, a long time, uh, kind of successful political, uh, uh, communications person he now works at, he worked at Facebook. He now works at Facebook again. Um, and, uh, and he had a lot of ideas around, you know, kind of how political discourse could change. I love building stuff and someone had introduced us and we came together and, um, and started this company Sidewire. Um, and so it was really for me, the opportunity to build yeah. something that I was really excited about with someone who was just like a total subject matter expert on the space. Um, and, uh, and so that's what we, that's what we started in, in 2014 and Sidewire was, um, you can kind of think of it as Twitter without the noise. So it was a platform where political experts could post, um, and anyone could read, but only the experts could actually post and participate in conversations. Um, and it was a very, uh, kind of conversational, interface format. So there was kind of like a chat, you were reading chats between the experts. Um, and that was the, that was the product that we, that we built. Super cool. Yeah. And, and I know that nowadays people are always looking for better versions of Twitter, you know, or just, yeah, experts just, um, improving like the, the quality of information. That's, that's interesting. What was, so what was that, that experience like founding it? Like, what did you guys end up doing? What did you learn along the way? Yeah. So the, the business ended up failing and didn't work out. And, um, it was a great experience. I mean, learned a ton, yeah. obviously <laughs> first company hiring, managing and building product. And, you know, all of these things I think were, were so interesting. Um, tons of learnings, you know, on a personal level, professional level, you know, how do you, how do you build, build companies? I think from a business perspective, the product we were building was just not the right product. And I, you know, for what it's worth, I actually think several of the pieces of it were ahead of their time. This kind of conversational format that we're starting to see pop up more and more, this idea of alternative social media platforms. There were a whole bunch of things I think were ahead yeah. of their time. But fundamentally there was a huge uh, issue with the product that we didn't recognize and rectify because it was actually kind of core to our identity. 
which was no one likes read-only platforms. Everyone actually wants to participate in the conversation. Um, now, everyone's dream is that they are the only person participating with all the experts, and you don't have to deal with all the noise from the other people. But unfortunately, you can't really do that. It doesn't really work. Um, and so since so core to our identity was, okay, it's a pl this platform for experts, I think we just pounded at it over and over again and weren't able to get there on, on traction. Um, and I think that really was it, was, it was an amazing product. It was amazing content. We did an incredible job getting what we called the newsmakers, the experts onto the platform. We had over a thousand incredible political experts, presidential candidates, mm -hmm. senators, top analysts and reporters. But the audience didn't show up because the audience doesn't actually really care about that for better or for worse. Um, and so a lot of learnings there on kind of what it what it takes to get to product market yeah. fit um, and uh, and how to how to think about, you know, exactly what you're what you're yeah. doing. That's cool. Yeah. And, and it's very consumer. Uh, yeah, consumer is tough. But um, I mean, great experience. And like, I think you just reps and you learn each time. And and like you said, that yeah, that product has a lot of features that today would be applicable. Um, that's awesome. So then. So then after that, you went to, you then started CoinList or what was that? What was the, yeah, the next part of the, the startup journey like? Yeah, that's correct. So um, CoinList got started because uh, Protocol Labs, who, who builds Filecoin, uh, they were going to run the Filecoin token sale and they needed to run this token sale, but they needed help with compliance. Mm -hmm. And so they went to their friends at AngelList and said, AngelList, you're the best startup fundraising platform out there, great compliance, all this stuff. Let's work together to run the Filecoin token sale. And as they started to work together, they realized that actually every single token project was going to need the exact same set of services. Um, and so they, they were like, yeah, hey, there's a business. There's a business here and made the decision to turn it into its own independent company. I knew the Protocol Labs team. I knew the Angelus team um, really well. And uh, and so I came in uh, as one of the co-founders, along with a couple other folks, um, to start and run this new independent company coin list to provide uh, services to the best digital asset projects out there. And so we started CoinList with a mission to seek out and vet the best projects, um, help them manage their token sales. And now obviously the company's expanded to a massive array of other businesses as well, an exchange, staking products, governance products, tons of other ancillary services, which was always the yeah. plan around this uh, kind of initial beachhead of, uh, of running, running token sales. Super cool. Yeah. <clears throat> and, I, and I feel like, you know, it's, not like a no brainer, um, but you can apply analogies like, you know, whenever there's a new industry, there's going to need to be infrastructure and you can kind of like, you know, KYC, you know, a lot of legal company formation. Maybe if there's something specific with HR, like you can kind of verticalize products there. So that's super cool. And, and that was around like the ICO kind of boom era. Yeah, that was in, that was in, it started in fall 2017. Okay. What was that period like having, you know, like lived through it? On the front, on the, yeah. oh, it was, it was wild for us. It was, it was, re, it was crazy. I mean, we were getting hundreds of applications a day to run their token sales on CoinList. We could not have been busier going and vetting these projects and building all this mm -hmm. infrastructure at the same time. Where is, you know, the analogy talks, the classic analogy talks about building the plane as it's as yeah, it's taking yeah, yeah. off, and it was very much a building the plane as it's taking off uh, situation. Um, and so, we're, we were working so hard vetting all these projects, talking to them, selling them and, and building the, the infrastructure. Um, it was just a, it was a crazy, crazy yeah, time. That's sweet. Um, and I, that, I mean, that experience is like, you know, un, unparalleled of being so early in an industry and then being also just being a part for the different like periods of it and, you know, meet, meeting, growing your network, meeting different people 
working on things. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Um, so then after that, I definitely, you know, want to, want to talk a lot about your newest venture. Um, what did you kind of also at this time, were you in, you were in the, the Bay area or you were kind of jumping around or. Yeah, I was back and forth to San Francisco, okay. New York a little bit. Um, so it's about 50, 50 between those two okay. cities. And, and I guess like, yeah, I mean, you've been doing all these startups, like socially, you know, what was that, you know, just, or mentally, you know, I've, I'm a, worked on multiple projects, but like, kind of like, how are you, um, yeah, wh- where was your headspace at with all these different companies and just being like in this crazy, you know, blowing up, you know, space? Oh, I, I, I love it. I mean, I, I like building things. I, I like the challenge yeah. of it. Um, and got to work with really incredible people at all, all three of these, these companies. Um, and yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't be doing it yeah. if I didn't, if I didn't love yeah. it. So for me, it's, it's incredibly exciting. Now, you know, Coinlist 27, end of 2017, we're just talking about was this crazy time. Coinlist was the undisputed leader and is the undisputed leader in token sales for crypto projects. So there was tons of tension and energy and it, it was, it couldn't have been busier. Um, but then the market really died in 2018 going to 2019 um and we had kind of crypto winter um and for a business that at that point was uh was really focused on just token sales hadn't yet diversified into other uh revenue streams like exchange lending and all that that was really hard so that was actually kind of the opposite all of a sudden our phones weren't ringing off the hook there were no token sales to be had uh and you know it doesn't do much for you to be the undisputed leader in a market that's died for six months um and so that was really hard too how do you build through that and, and kind of fight through the adversity and find ways to make things make sense and honestly just survive. Uh, and so it was a, it was a very different feeling then it wasn't like it was all, uh, you know, up into the right for, for, uh, for years, years straight. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, you've been through these different cycles. Uh, how did you guys like survive through that? We had, we'd been smart and raised capital to, you know, allow us to, survive uh which was important uh and we just fought hard and figured out ways to squeeze revenue and find customers and try out new business lines and launch new products and you know i think some of those experiments didn't work out and we didn't weren't able to drive anything meaningful meaningful from them some of them were massive successes um and you know i remember one one such product not to get too in the weeds here but uh there's a version of Bitcoin called wrapped Bitcoin, WBTC, that is Bitcoin that exists on the Ethereum blockchain. So you can kind of use Bitcoin on Ethereum. Um, and it's just, it's backed one-to-one by an actual Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain. And that got started. It got started by a consortium of a few companies, including BitGo. Um, and there was a clear kind of service that needed to be provided around pooling and exchanging Bitcoin for wrapped Bitcoin. And someone on the Coinless team named Matt Job Duval, who's, who's amazing and um, now runs financial products at Dapper Labs, uh, made a really strong case. Like, I think we can drive revenue off of this. I think this there's an opportunity here that we can grab. And it was a little bit orthogonal to our yeah. core business. Um, but Matt and a few other people worked really hard and hustled that out. And that's now a, a really significant uh, you know, revenue driver, uh, or at least was uh, for the business. And so just finding yeah, those opportunities yeah. to do what you can to, to push things forward was, was the way to, way yeah, to do that's it. That's sweet. Especially around revenue. I mean, like Bitcoin and, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain revolves around money. So there's always an angle somewhere, you know, and, and a lot of companies raising money. So services and things like that. And, and I know, you know, I'm, I've been getting into like 
crypto, Web3 now last year more so. A lot of my friends are in it. I know Wrapped Ether is used for like, it's kind of more for, especially using like OpenSea and for like making bids and having, um, yeah, for auctions. Like is it, does Wrapped Bitcoin work similar to that or? Yeah, it's similar. Um, we can get a little bit in the weeds here. Tell me if this is if this is yeah. too much, but uh, you know, you might ask. Wrap Bitcoin is Bitcoin and Ethereum have different blockchains, so Wrap Bitcoin is a way to transact Bitcoin on the Ethereum blockchain, which is seems yeah, important, yeah, yeah. right? We want to you want to do decentralized finance things with Bitcoin. You need a version of Bitcoin on the mm-hmm. Ethereum blockchain. Um, it's it's a little bit less obvious why you need something called Wrapped Ethereum. Why do you need a a wrapped version of Ethereum oh, on Ethereum. the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum is Ethereum. Um, and the answer is that uh, most decentralized finance products um, rely on the tokens that they support conforming to a certain set of standards. And Ethereum, the base token of uh, of the Ethereum blockchain, actually doesn't conform to those mm. standards. So people created a version of Ethereum called wrapped Ethereum, which is backed one-to-one by actual Ethereum but is a token that conforms to these standards that products expect. And so for products like OpenSea or, or other um, networks, a lot of them will use wrapped Ethereum because it's easier to support it since it conforms to the standards expected of all the other tokens in the, in the Interesting. system. That's cool. Yeah. And I, and I know you come from, I mean, literally a, a academic from the class to a, a, a operational or just actually, you know, building these products out. So, you know, you know, this technology is probably better than anyone. They've been seeing it evolving and building with it. So that's I feel like your knowledge base is like insane. Um, also, well, yeah, definitely. So, so now I know you're working on eco um, and yeah, I'd love to, to, for you to share more. I know a little bit about it, but like for the audience, like what does eco do um, and kind of where are you guys at right now? Yeah. So eco is trying to do what I think crypto is always meant to do, which is reimagine money in the financial system from the ground up. So how can we build an entirely new, uh, new system. Um, and so at its core today, if you go to eco.com, what you'll see is uh, this incredible consumer financial product that replaces your bank with something better. So you put your money in, get two and a half to 5% APY in rewards, get 5% cash back, spending at major merchants, Amazon, Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, use the eco debit card to spend anywhere, uh, pay your bills through the product, much more coming soon. Um, but it's really built around, you know, how can we provide you a better experience than your bank? Um, and a lot of that is powered by crypto on the back end. So how can we use these better payment rails to make these things more efficient, return more value to customers? And then really importantly, with everything you do in the eco app, you also earn eco points. And these points are the start of our vision towards what could be a totally open rewards mm-hmm. currency. So what would it look like to leave behind the world of these closed walled garden rewards currencies and move to a truly open one that brings community together and, and aligns incentives in such a way that you can create something bigger than yourself. Um, and that's really what we're after here is reimagining this kind of currency rewards, currency angle, uh, from the ground up is, is the ultimate ambition as bootstrapped by this incredible consumer financial product. Super cool. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, like you said, everyone's wanted to reimagine banking, you know, like there's DeFi, but as someone who's working on a lot of consumer products, I think we spoke about this as well, that like your average like consumer doesn't give a shit about what blockchain does or like, or do, first off, doesn't understand it and doesn't know what it then doesn't know what, like doesn't care. They just care about the benefits. And so I think, you know, we, that you guys are doing a good job of disguising it in the background, 
which is showing like the utility and the benefits up front. I actually was checking out your website earlier this week and read a lot about um, the history of payments, which, you know, I actually had been, worked on a side project this past year that we had some payment processing issues and uh, been kind of just learning more about payments through that. But, um, but yeah, it was actually really great read. So definitely recommend anyone check out Eco's website on, you know, the whole narrative. I think you guys did a really good job of showing the history, going to, you know, how banking was established to where it is now and how outdated it is and kind of what you guys are doing to replace it. Um, could you like just kind of touch on that a little bit of, you know, the, that whole history? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I certainly can. And I appreciate you saying that. The first thing I'll say is that I actually think the history of how money and payments and banking came together is really important, more important in this space than many others, because it's not just interesting from a historical standpoint, but it's because the history actually is the reason that things are yeah, the way they yeah. are today in this space. And we're still using infrastructure that was created decades ago, in some cases, even longer to power transactions mm. today. And that's bizarre because in the time since the ACH system was created and all this financial technology that we use to move money around was created, the internet got created. Now I'm not even talking about crypto here. I'm talking about just the base internet uh, and understanding the history that led up to us using such an archaic system uh, is I think really important understanding how things can be better. And so for us, the historical exercise isn't just one of saying, let's you know try and learn from the past. It's actually about learning from the present because that's still what we have today is this historical yeah. system. Um, and so there's, there's a ton of pieces of this, but, um, you know, one, one piece that we'd love to talk about is how, uh, the ACH system works. So ACH is short for, uh, automated clearinghouse, and it is how you send most money in the United States today is through the ACH system. So anytime you see something that says transfer will land in two to five days, that's mm -hmm. the ACH system. When you withdraw from Venmo ACH system, when you do any of these things, it's ACH, um, Payroll, when you get your paycheck, ACH, Most, mostly how money's moved. The other major system in terms of bulk money movement is wire transfers, which are faster and more expensive, um, but ACH is how most money moves. And people should read the blog post because we wrote it much more elegantly than I'll say it here uh, live. But the fundamental, most interesting thing to us from a historical perspective is that the ACH system batches transactions. It moves these transactions in batches. That's a little bit odd to us. Why would you move money in batches when you could just move money every time a transaction happens? And the reality is it's because of the way it came together, dating back all the way to the Pony Express. So when we had the Pony Express in America to move mail around, of course, things had to be batched. You weren't going to send a courier yeah. on a pony from one city to another with a single and, check. And it wouldn't and make that's any where sense. Wells Fargo no, gets like their logo. The... That's where Wells Fargo gets their logo. Exactly. And so you batch transactions. And just by virtue of the way that things evolved, again, I won't go into the full detail, blog posts do that just fine. Based on the way that things evolved, that batching system just kind of never went away. We just kept it even as we moved to newer and better infrastructure, we, we kept it. Um, and it's it literally dates back to the Pony Express. And so there's a, endless examples of that in finance where the way things were done remains the way things are done um, without any really good reason for that to be the case when there are better alternatives out there. And that's what we are trying to bring about most fundamentally. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with, like, you need to know the history, not just for the sake of, I mean, I love learning about history, but for the sake of understanding 
number one, I have a, I have a good friend. Uh, he always says this quote. It's, it's kind of true. I don't know where he got it from, but basically that, you know, with startups and you've worked on multiple, you know, seen success, seen failure. You have to be young and naive to be able to be like, I want to challenge a big industry. I want to, you know, disrupt, quote unquote. But I think something really important to realize and being like cynical and pragmatic is that markets are relatively efficient and a new technology or new company can only take place if you can answer the question of like, what's changed the technology or like consumer behaviors and like consumer behavior part is very tough. But like, you know, I, I, people like to shit on like, you know, why does this work the way it does? Like, oh, it's so outdated. It's like, you have to understand the history that that was the, that was the, the constraints at the time and understand why that was a constraints and then have a real good reason for why there's a new technology can, that can make that better. So I think like you, like with that history and like the, you know, the kind of the, the rationale for eco, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I actually, you know, didn't know the full kind of history of what, why things are the way they are. I mean, that's also something that's really also relevant to some businesses I've been working on and friends and stuff like that. Um, the fact that in the batch system, um, the way it works is almost like relying on, it's very like backwards where you wait to see if the, the payment went through at the end. Um, and I think that's where it could be wrong here, where chargebacks come from and like risk and fraud, where it's after the fact and it's not like along the way or, or more proactive. Um, I don't know if that's true, but, um, that's, it's one of the places chargebacks and fraud come from other places in the system as well, but one source of chargebacks and fraud, um, and bounce checks and yeah. all these things is that the tr transaction is checked at the end. Um, I think that's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. It's interesting. I do think, by the way, just one one note on the timing point that you make. Um, I tend to think that the greatest things come around when there's a confluence of uh, social, economic, and technological tailwinds, where something's changed in all of those. And for us at Eco, we think a lot about that, that from an economic perspective, uh, net interest, the amount of money that people are making, uh, kind of effective yield, is not good right now. And in fact, savings rates... Uh, interest rates minus uh, inflation, it's negative right now. So you're losing money, yeah. losing purchasing power, leaving it in the bank account. Last time that happened was in the 1970s when there was an incredible boom of financial innovation. When we saw credit card, the credit card boom, when we saw money market funds and individual brokerage products, when there's an economic shift like that and all of a sudden people are losing purchasing power, leaving it in their bank accounts, they look for mm -hmm. alternatives. And so you get this customer yeah. drive. And then for us, from a you combine that moment happening right now with a social change that all of a sudden people are trusting institutions less and less and trusting upstarts more and more. Well, that's an opportunity for us. So people are looking for a better answer and they're willing to trust upstarts. That's an interesting dynamic. And then to your point, technologically, two things have happened in recent years that allow eco to exist. One of them is the advent and advancement of blockchain technology. 10 years ago, it didn't exist. 12 years ago, it didn't exist. No, 14 years ago now, it didn't exist. I lose track of time. And it's only been the last few years that some innovations have happened that allow eco to exist. And then also fintech. There are a ton of businesses that have been started in the last five years that enable eco. We work with amazing yeah. partners, Lithic, to help us issue cards, Papaya Pay to help us pay bills. Companies like that didn't exist yeah, 10 years yeah. ago. And so you have these confluence of factors that allows you to create this thing that needs to be created. Um, and I, that to me feels like a generation. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great way to put it. And, and yeah, that's very true. I, was, I mean, and, and, um, 
we're, I guess we're grateful or yeah, grateful for sure. In a, not all of it, but to live during these eras of change. I mean, everything from COVID to a new generation, you know, millennials and Gen Z growing up to the markets changing a lot to the, to the, to the, the global landscape changing. I mean, there's a lot of pressure right now as well, as well on like digitization for, you know, digital, digital money in the United States more from like a geopolitical perspective of like becoming the next digital dollar and making sure China does not jump that position. So it's definitely like an interesting like confluence, like you said. Um, that's awesome. And I guess like uh, kind of around eco, um, how are you, know, where are you guys at right now? And, and I, and, and you guys are a consumer product. How are you, how are you communicating this and kind of getting, you know, the word out about, you know, this, that this new technology is here and it's not too good to be true. Yeah, we're, we're, we're growing ecos scaling as a company and as a product and as a community. And so lots of, lots of advancement right now, you know, it's when these, when these trends come together and you get this confluence of factors, the market kind of pulls the product out of you at some level and comes to you. Um, and so we've seen incredible adoption and, and growth, um, which has been great. And we get the word out mostly through education. We find that we're working on something that just needs to be explained to people. And once it's explained, there's not really any selling that needs to happen. People just understand now and want to sign up. Um, and so we're very focused on education. We do big public events uh, regularly where we bring in guests and we talk about what's happening and what the world looks like. Um, we do content, you know, content education. We um, do a lot of different things and, and market through more traditional channels as well. Um, but it's all about for us educating and bringing people along for the, uh, for the journey. Awesome. Cool. Well, Andy, I definitely appreciate the time and, you know, we can wrap up soon, I guess, just to kind of like, end, you know, um, and I'm definitely excited to, to see where eco goes. And, you know, I, I definitely look up to you in terms of an entrepreneur, you've done a lot. Um, I guess, what are some like words of advice that you have, like, or, or some learnings, you know, being an entrepreneur, having done this so many times, building companies, products that you have for, you know, other people who are in the middle of it, you know, or getting started? It's a good question. I appreciate the kind words. Um, I think the biggest thing that I find myself telling people over and over again is no one has all the answers. Everyone's just doing their best. There's not any silver bullet that's going to change everything magically. Just put your best effort in. Everyone else is doing the same. And no matter how experienced someone is and all of that, you learn a lot with experience. I'm, I, you know, think I'm a hundred times, thousand times better operator than I was when I started Sidewire eight years ago or whenever that was. But at the same time, I still have room to grow. Everyone does. And you should just do your absolute best of the time. Seek out helpful people, ask for advice, do all of that. But at the end of the day, everyone's just figuring it out as they go. And that's life. And don't think that you're sitting there alone without the answers when everyone else has them. Because that is most assuredly not the case. Yeah. Uh, uh, great, great point. Yeah. And, and the people who say that they know everything, don't don't trust those people. <laughs> Amazing. Well, well, Andy, thanks again. Um, you know, great catching up, excited to share your story and yeah, we'll definitely stay in touch soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.